the Dynamic Deputies. Hello and welcome to the Dynamic Deputies podcast run by two deputy heads living on opposite sides of the country. Thank you for tuning in for some more informative and inspiring CPD. Yes, welcome everybody. Today we're thinking about high quality explanations and we're joined by Adam Boxer for this episode. Adam is Head of Science at the Totteridge Academy in London. Adam is a prolific blogger, co-founder of an online quizzing tool called Carousel Learning and author of Teaching Secondary Science. Adam, a very warm welcome to our podcast. Thank you so much. Good to be here. It's great to talk to you, Adam. Thanks for joining us. Please tell us a little bit more about your career to date and where this interest in writing about education has come from. Yeah, so I I trained in uh, 2013 and I did just a standard PGC and I I was never 100% sure that I was going to be a teacher. You know, I only sort of decided about halfway through my degree, which is in chemistry, that I wanted to, to try out teaching. I got rejected from a bunch of places and it was like touch or go whether or not I stuck it out. Uh, and then basically I just like fell in love with it. Um, and I just, uh, I totally nerded out. I think, I think I'm kind of an all or nothing guy. Uh, and I got into mm-hmm. it and I got into it heavy. And I was just like desperate the whole time to just be better and to, you know, just improve as a teacher. Unfortunately, in the first few years of my career, I was uh, working very hard and uh, being entirely ineffective in hindsight. Uh, I just was like doing complete nonsense in the classroom. I was getting rave reviews. Yeah, everyone was like, oh, wow. Yeah, that was super. And I was like, yeah, man, do it there. For them. <laughs> it was, it was so, yeah, like looking back, I'm like, what? Yeah, I, yeah. Just let, look, we don't need to go there. Right, we've all been there. Um, <laughs> we've been there. We've been there, yeah. And, uh, but I started, like, at some point, I started uh, reading research and I got onto the Twitter business. Uh, my opinions and my mind started changing quite a lot. And I was influenced by a lot of the kind of heavy hitters from the time, you know, people like uh, Tom Bennett and Greg Ashman and Carl Hendrick, um, Don Cox, Joe Faiser, Daisy Christodoulou, you know, people who don't necessarily blog so much anymore, but like, those years, they were heady times to be involved in that kind of stuff. And there were, you know, these guys were cracking out these amazing blogs, you know, every week. Um, my teaching changed a lot and I got really interested in reading a lot of the research myself. And then I joined my school, the Tartridge Academy, a couple of years ago. It's my third year there now. And then, um, like, the, the quality of teaching and learning at the Tartridge Academy is, is a joke in terms of how good it is. It's like... Uh, it's like being in the Champions League. It's just, uh, it's, it's astonishing uh, how good the teaching and learning and how good the discourse and conversation around teaching and learning is. And my progress just accelerated wildly. And, you know, I'd already been writing and blogging and stuff like that before then. And a lot of my stuff had been like what those guys that I spoke about have been blogging, you know, big philosophical stuff, knowledge-rich curriculum, you know, research on retrieval practice, cognitive load theory, that kind of stuff. And then I became head of department and I joined TTA and, and it wasn't like that stuff was worthless, but it was like, what what's the point? Because it's about what it does in the classroom, Yeah. So it's all very well saying retrieval practice is great, but like, how do you, how do you do that? Mm. What what does that actually mean in the classroom? Uh, And I actually started, I didn't move, I wasn't moving away from the research, but I was, I was trying to do things that the research wasn't doing, which Mm. is applying it in a classroom. You know, the research is all, it's either so tightly controlled that you can't meaningfully 
replicate it in the classroom in terms of the way they do a randomized control trial on, you know, looking at, uh, you know, like the way, you know, if a person is looking at this side of the page versus that side of the page, they're going to learn better. And you're like, well, great, but I've got 30 <laughs> feral 14 year olds. It's not transferable mm. or it's so vague and woolly as to be utterly useless. And it's all full of the, you know, Bordeo and social capital and having surveys and talking to kids who hate science about why they hate science. And they're like, Oh, cause it's hard. And you're like, great. That, <laughs> I mean, what, what am I, yeah. What am I supposed to do with it? Mm. So it was really about trying to take stuff and, and figure out the best way to do it just in the classroom in a super concrete way. And also, cause I was, I was responsible for others at this point. I'm trying to help others get better in the classroom and build a culture around uh, like a specific vision of what good teaching in science looks like and trainees and all of that. Uh, and basically it was at that point that I started thinking about the book, which was how to communicate the stuff that I was doing and getting wrong mm -hmm. and how, you know, you mentioned that, I, that I'm the, one of the founders of Carousel Learning. Yeah. So Carousel Learning is an online quizzing platform. Great. Fine. I've been doing retrieval practice like deliberately for about five years mm. and I'm only now at the point where I'm happy with it. Mm. It's taken me, it's taking, it's taken me four years of failure to set up a startup from scratch in the middle of COVID to be happy with the way I'm doing retrieval practice. Like it's not, it's not reasonable to expect that of people. Yeah. So, so if you are, if <laughs> yeah. you are in that lucky position where you've, you, you know, you've done that time, you've worked it out and you're happy, you're satisfied with the way it's going communicate that so you can accelerate other people's progress so that they don't have to do the fannying and the feffing mm. and i can say look yeah i tried this it doesn't work yeah mm. do it like that and it will be better um so so that's kind of where the where, where the book sprang from i guess awesome thank you so adam today we're thinking about effective explanations why do you see this as such an important thing for teachers to be spending more time thinking about there was a poll on twitter i think today asking people what the single most important part of teaching was um and they had uh, i can't remember what they put on it like you know uh, i don't i don't know what the options were but it, it doesn't matter because like there is no single most important part of teaching um in terms of like the craft of what you do in the classroom you know you you break down into a few areas you've got content that you need to teach so the first thing is you need to specify and think about that content you need to understand it yourself you then need to check whether or not students have knowledge that will allow them to access this topic um, if a student doesn't know what a plant is there's no point talking to them about plant cells right um, you then need to explain what the plant cell is you then need to check for understanding, prepare them to practice. They need to do their independent practice and then you need to review that and then you need to give them a, a chance at a later date to, to you know, revisit that. Yeah, it sounds simple, but every component is tremendously complex and, and every one of them is necessary. Yeah, that's the point. Mm. You, can't, you can't say that any one of them is more important than the other. So uh, independent practice isn't as important as a check for understanding, which isn't as important as this. Yeah, because they're all important. They work together and it's not zero sum either. You should be doing all of them. It's only zero sum if you're in a school or department where they say, this is what you have to cover this lesson and you have you have a time limit i'm not we don't work like that we say this is what we've got to teach it's going to take as long as it takes you know if you're be being told it's zero sum then you have to make a sacrifice you have to cut you have to trim whatever but you know that's not ideal you shouldn't be having to do that and what that means is that every part is important explanations is underexplored and um, sometimes when people ask me to do a session on explanations i bring a stack of textbooks uh, so i bring my pgc textbooks and I go to the back and I go into the index and I say, look, there is no entry. 
underneath the word explanation. Mm. And I go to the next one and I say, look, there is no entry underneath the word explanation. There's stuff about misconceptions. There's stuff about social capital. There's stuff about how to run a practical, but there's nothing about explanations. And then I say, look, just so you don't think I'm caricaturing, I pick up a copy of Teach Like a Champion 2.0. And I say, look, this is one of the best books on education that's ever been written. There's nothing here about, about explanations. I pick up Dan Willingham's Why Don't Teach Why Don't Students Like School? And he has a little bit about explanations. He has something called the four C's, which he says the good explanations need to have. And it's a good chapter. It's an interesting chapter, but there's no concrete guidance at all. I then pick up Rosenshine's Principles of Instruction. Again, I don't want people to think that I'm caricaturing and I'm just like lambasting the past, past Adam. And I say, look, you know, Rosenstein has a principle, which is to break content into small parts. How? Where do I stop? What's the right place to stop? How do I know what a big enough part is or what small enough part is? Do I always have to do that? What about when I can't? You know, if I'm teaching the coal power plant, for example, it's a cycle. And it's not a cycle, it's a process, yeah? And if you break it into small parts, it's ridiculous. It becomes fragmented and it's just not readily intelligible. So it's, it's an entirely underexplored area. And whereas there were loads of people blogging and writing about retrieval practice, not, not necessarily all good stuff, but there were lots of people doing it. There were lots of people writing about all of the other aspects, but there was very little around the place about explanations. And for me, it's interesting because uh, I own a business that deals in retrieval practice and retrieval practice is the most important part of my job. Mm. And it's the most important part of any teacher's job. Because if you, you can teach something brilliantly, but if they don't remember it, then did they ever learn it to start with? What was the point? And it, it's a valid question. And I, I consider retrieval practice to be holy and incredibly important, but like, it doesn't excite me. I don't before a lesson think, oh God, how am I going to do retrieval practice? Like, wow. <laughs> no, it's a word equation for photosynthesis. I'm going to give them again as a question. It's going to be beautiful. Like, I don't, like, it's not, it's not for me. Maybe there are some people that just really love the idea of, the same question at spaced at three week intervals but for me going into a lesson like thinking hard about that explanation how am i going to communicate that i really enjoy that and i i find the process engrossing and, and i know it makes a difference to the students as well but it's something that like interests and excites me as well so from your book adam it's clear that your strategies have been informed by research cognitive science and your own experiences in the classroom can you tell us a little bit more about how those three things have fed into your understanding of what makes a good explanation and do they carry equal weight and influence? This is a this is a really good and difficult question to answer because the the basic principles come from cognitive science, and the rest is pure experience in the classroom. What principles come from cognitive science? Things like the multimedia effect, cognitive load theory, split attention effect, redundancy effect, things like that. They come from the research, and there's decent evidence to support them. That doesn't tell you how to explain something in the class. And there are plenty of people around who know that research and don't teach the way that I do and don't explain things the way that I do. It took me a very, very long time to figure out what makes a good explanation. And in the book, I call it theories of directions of travel, um, which are kind of the, they're, they're an overarching structure to an explanation. They're, they're, they're a model, a heuristic a tool that allows you to think about how am I going to build my explanation from scratch? But tons of it is just based on classroom experience, me trying to figure out um, what the best way to do it is and by implementing those principles. I threw myself a PowerPoint a long time ago and that helped a lot. 
and I strongly advocate in the book I call it I can't remember what I call it in the book live modeling maybe I don't remember live drawing maybe I don't remember but I call it now blank canvassing because I think that gives the um that gives the point a greater strength which is that you start start from a blank canvas uh, the more you can start from scratch just with your hand and a pen almost always the better your explanation is going to be you build up slowly deliberately carefully there's structure there's narrative students understand where you're going you're directing their attention you're putting them here you're putting them there you're putting them somewhere else you're making that information flow in a way that is cognitively delectable but all of that comes from work that I've done in the classroom and crucially looking at other people's as well um so you know I'm very blessed I get to you know there, there's probably a handful of science teachers in the country that get to observe as many lessons as I do uh, I observe tons in school as just part of my normal duties as head of department but I also I'm lucky I go all over the country and I get to look at different departments people send me videos to watch um to get feedback on and stuff like that and it, and it, it means that I get to see things you know I'm, I'm just so lucky with the opportunities that I've had and it, and it means that I can I can pick up a, a point of failure and I can say ah this this that's where it's going to go wrong and the students aren't going to get it uh, you know I went into uh, I was at a school recently and we were doing a learning walk with the head of the department we went into a lesson the teacher was teaching something quite complicated and they were using a powerpoint and the powerpoint was forcing them down a blind alley because it was you know you, you don't have a choice with a, with a powerpoint yeah, you can't adapt, you can't respond because it's set out before. And it was like putting up the next bit and she didn't want it. She was like, no, 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 forget that. We'll go back, blah, blah, blah. And um, she was teaching them how to do a particular calculation. And, and we, we came out of the room and I said to the head of the department, I said, look, um, uh, we're going to come back. We're going to go to some other rooms. We're going to come back here in exactly 15 minutes. How many questions do you think the students will have done? And how well do you think they will have done in those questions? So the head of the department said, and, and one of their colleagues said, we think there'll be three questions in and about 75% of the students will have got them all right. And I said, you are way off. When we come back, absolutely none of them will have got anything right. We went off to watch another lesson. We came back in exactly 15 minutes later. They were still on the same example as the one that we'd left and none of them had a clue what they were doing. We left the room a further 15 minutes later and they had just finished that example and badly yeah and i'm like i'm like look you know the teacher in there was strong like their classroom control their command was strong their subject knowledge was strong but the explanation was pence and there were multiple points of error that i could spot and then what i did afterwards i showed the head of the department how i would have done it and they were like oh that would have worked and i was like yes <laughs> yes i know <laughs> thank you um so but but like that's taken me a number of years to get to that point again quality feedback working on oak i was part of oak wave one so the first round of Oak, where the explanation was even more important than it is in class because you're working at a distance. And if that explanation isn't good, you can't like circulate and help a kid quietly if they didn't fully get it. They've got to get it first time. Um, otherwise, they're, they're not in with a chance. So, so yeah, all of that kind of came together and it's, and, it's a, and it's given me the chance to kind of put this down. But as am I allowed to swear on this podcast what's the rules I don't, I don't know sure I mean we actively encourage it <laughs> oh, okay right. you've already said fannying which uh <laughs> all right well 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 we'll compliment that one and say you know I don't want to be a dick about anything but like there is no there, there is no other to my knowledge there is no other framework for just like breaking down an explanation and just teaching people how to do it um there isn't one that exists mm. uh, and I'm, I'm really proud of it it's, it's the part of the book that excites me the most and that I'm most proud of um, and then you know people ask me to do CPD here they are everywhere and and without a doubt you know the retrieval practice stuff that I do is so important 
when I teach people how to write independent practice, it's so important. When I teach people how to structure a science curriculum, it's so important. Yeah, like it's 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 crucial work. But nothing gets people as excited as when I do the modeling stuff <laughs> because people watch it and they're like, what have I been doing? They're just like, why have I not been doing it like that? You know, we had a visitor. We have visitors come to school a lot. It's, you know, it's really nice and it's an honor to host people. This person, she sees, you know, again, she's not like, she's not minnows yeah she's seen a lot of lessons a lot of different schools and stuff like that hmm. at the end of the lesson she just go, turns to me she just goes i've never seen anyone teach like that i've just i've just never seen it before and and she saw you know six or seven lessons in our department that day she saw the same thing in every single one and my colleagues are are eclipsing me hmm. uh, in their skill hmm. here uh, and i'm proud of that i can't think of it if it's something profound or if it's something from like the Kung Fu Kid or something. I think Karate Kid, yeah. Karate Kid, yeah. When your students become your masters or whatever. And like, <laughs> I, I pray for that day. I, I want people to, to enjoy their explanations. I want people to free themselves of, of PowerPoint. I want people to feel natural, dynamic and organic and fluent in their explanations and, and throughout their classroom practice. Brilliant. So, Adam, what we do know is that even the most effective teachers can have terrible lessons where they get it wrong in terms of explaining them key concepts to children. So how have your own classroom mistakes helped you improve as a teacher? Yeah, a lot. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'll give you another example. There's a phrase we use at our school. It's called looking in the mirror. Yeah, looking in the mirror is about actively reflecting on your practice. And uh, sometimes, you know, we, we're always told when we do our PGC that you need to be a reflective practitioner. Okay, we're like, how? What, what we do is we identify a point where things went wrong and we go earlier in the chain to figure out at what point could I have intervened to stop that happening. So, for example, I had a problem with my year 10 boys. They kept, like, just fiddling with the taps in the lab. Yeah. <laughs> and like they weren't doing it maliciously yeah but it, it turns into an issue because you'd fiddle with the tap and a few drops would come out and i often store my mini whiteboards under those taps and then the mini whiteboard would be wet and then the kid who picks up the mini whiteboard has got wet and oh so it's wet i need to get a thing and they're wandering around the closet it's just like these things blossom and they bloom so so i've got two choices yeah so normally people would say to you okay so if a kid touches a tap just you just give them a clear warning you explain what the problem is and then you follow through a kid touches a tap it's detention yeah whatever i said yeah fine i could do that or i just turn the stopcock off i just went under every sink and just turn the stopcock off because then there's no problem i don't have to get into an argument with anyone i don't have to follow through because it's just not going to happen that's called looking in the mirror yeah that's where you say what could i have done differently earlier on and what i could have done differently earlier on was turn the tap off the, the reason why that's so powerful is because if something goes wrong in the classroom it's not about just responding and getting annoyed with the kids it's about then going backwards and figuring out where you went wrong that, that caused this issue. If a kid um, answers the previous question, yeah, you're, you're, you've asked two questions, kid answers the previous question, you've got two routes. Route number one is you have a go at them for not listening, right? Because like, clearly they weren't listening. Route number two is maybe I spoke too fast. Maybe I did the two questions too quickly. I saw a lesson this week. Yeah, uh, the teacher asked the question, and the kid called out the right answer. So um, they said, "They said don't call out in here." And I said to him, "I said, well, why do you think the kid called out?" And they were like, "Oh, well, I don't know. Some kids are just really eager to please." I said, "No." I said, "You didn't. You didn't tell them how you wanted them to respond." 
Yeah, so whenever I ask a question, if I want if I want students to write on the mini whiteboards, I say on your mini whiteboards. If I want students to put their hand up, I say with the hand up. I say without I say uh, without calling out, everybody get your mini whiteboards. Or but if you give it a certain tone, you go, okay. Um, so what's the product from photosynthesis? Does anyone know? And then a kid calls out glucose. Yeah, you can tell them off for calling out because yeah, they shouldn't have called out. But what I normally do is I say, I say look, I, you know, actually, I'm really sorry. I wasn't clear. I didn't want you to call out for that one. Okay, that's my bet. Okay, I'll try it again. And I'm just going to ask one person. I know you now all know the answer, but it's important that we just get this right. That's called looking in the mirror. Yeah, it's about saying, like, something went wrong. I need to go back. But I'll give you an example from my own practice. Yeah, so very recently, I was teaching distance time graphs. to. I have a, I have a group that's academically, they're struggling. They're finding it really difficult. It's fair enough. Mm-hmm. You know, they're coming up to GCSEs, but they're finding stuff difficult. And I was teaching them distance time graphs. And uh, as I always do before I teach something new, I check whether or not they have what I call the prerequisite knowledge, the knowledge needed to access. So for distance time graph, they need to understand what I mean by distance, what the units of distance are, what I mean by time, what the units of time are. They need to know how to calculate speed, being having given distance and time. Uh, and they need to know how to uh, find a point on a graph. And they could do all of those things. And I'm teaching these distance time graphs and they're just getting stuff wrong. And I can feel myself getting more and more annoyed. And, you know, a few years ago, just like been like, <laughs> like that. you know, that feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, but now, like, like, what do I expect? Yeah. I, am I expecting too much of them here? So I had a really good think about it. And I, and I, and I walked around and I, and, I, and I asked some questions about their learning, specific pointed questions. And I tried to identify where they were going wrong. And I, and I figured it out they didn't know their number bonds. Yeah, so you guys are primary, right? Yeah. 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 So a lot of secondary colleagues don't know what a number bond is. Um, a number bond is essentially where there are just two numbers that make up another number and you just know what they are. You know, if you know your number bonds to 15, you know that seven and eight, did I get it right? Yeah, seven and eight are 15. And, and that makes mental arithmetic very quick, uh, very useful to, to just like have that banked. And I was asking these kids to, to look at distances traveled in specific points in the journey. So you start the journey at zero meters, you then go five meters in six seconds, and you then go another 10 meters in eight seconds or whatever. And to work out the second part of that journey, you have to do uh, one number minus another number, as opposed to just going from zero. And that's what they were struggling with. Mm. They were saying, right, well, it, it goes from seven to 12, but like they were taking so long to figure out that that meant five. Yeah that they couldn't do all the steps. Hmm. So that's called looking in the mirror. It's where you, you realize, and, and I know that next time I do that, that's, num- that's specific content that I'm going to check. Yeah. Trial and error, you learn from experience. Oh, I love that. So I picked your book up, Adam, because the brilliant Claire Seeley, who we love and adore, told me that there was some golden advice in there about explanations that I could apply within the primary setting and across other subjects and she was right in my opinion for example your advice around taking children on a journey from the familiar to the unfamiliar feels like sound advice regardless of the subject now you're really well placed in the secondary setting to tell me whether you feel all of your approaches can be used universally or is some of the advice in the book very specific to the teaching of science do you think yeah this is this is a difficult question to answer Look, we could spend a long time philosophically talking about disciplinary substance and the need for subject specificity and yada, yada. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think all of that is important, but time is of the essence. And like I said, for me now, the how is more important than all of the whys in the world. And and I put it very simply, there's nothing in that book that I haven't done myself. Yeah, I vouch for it. It's all been road tested. 
I can't advise other people to do something that I've not done myself. Mm -hmm. So I have a hunch that a lot of the stuff would be useful. And when someone like Claire and uh, says to you that, yes, your book is useful for primary practitioners, you know, uh, and Andrew Percival said the same and Tarjinza Gill said the same, you know, there are people who, who I trust and I'm willing to say, yeah, well, look, Claire and Andrew and Tarjinza said that it works in the primary classroom. I haven't got a clue. <laughs> I haven't been in, I haven't been in a primary classroom since I did my PGCE. I don't even understand when they're younger than 11. I just don't even, they're like a different species. It's not, I don't, <laughs> I just don't I, don't, I don't follow it. So I've never implemented it. So I could never turn around to either of you guys and say, yeah, yeah, it will work in the primary classroom. No, that's, that's, that's a good answer. Yeah. <laughs> and now, thanks, Adam. One of the things we do love about your book was the way you described how an explanation might come to life. So often this is based around simple diagrams drawn live with clear narration from the teacher. Can you tell us more about this process, Adam, and how it links to dual coding as well? Um, yeah, so so dual coding theory is, is kind of widely misunderstood. And and I remember, like, we did... Do you remember at the beginning of lockdown, Research Ed Home? Do you guys remember that? So, yeah. So mm -hmm. Research Ed started putting out videos, and um, I did a video called Dual Coding for Teachers Who Can't Draw. <laughs> and and that video by the way you can see it's it's really interesting because you know <laughs> obviously I'm, I'm not so arrogant as to suggest there will be adam boxer studies in 50 years but if there ever were archaeologists of adam boxer's work they'd see that like what i did in that dual coding video is like a very early version of what came then in the book and and it's interesting because it's also more theoretical than the sessions that i do now about dual coding theory Anyway, so that, that's a side point. But, but one of the things I pointed out is that dual coding is about how the human brain can interpret things both through a language kind of um, aspect or facet and through an image and visual aspect. So like words process language, pictures without words process visual. And you can process them at the same time. And that's called dual coding. Uh, and that's something that happens in the learner's head. So one of the things I said is that like teachers keep saying, oh, I'm doing some dual coding. And you're like, you're not. You're drawing pictures. <laughs> the students are dual coding. Yeah, the students are the ones who are learning. Coding just means learning, right? It means the process of getting stuff into your brain. And it's not, it, it, I don't even use it in the book. It's, it's not a phrase that I use because I think it's just become so tied up with absolute bollocks. There's people putting icons on stuff, people drawing these learning maps, tube maps. Let, <laughs> I know what, we teach kids in Wigan. Let's do them a tube map of their key stage three science curriculum. They've they don't even know what a tube is. They've never been outside Wigan in their life. Like, oh, it's it's like the trains that go underground in London. What's London? Like, what, like, like, what is going on here? Anyway, so, and people call that dual coding. So I just completely ignore the term. I don't think it's useful. I don't think it's helpful. But basically, one of the theories that I have around the way the brain works is that um, we, we're always trying to communicate things that are abstract. Yeah. So uh, what's the thing? Something that's abstract. A magnetic field is something that's abstract. It's an idea. It's about the area around the magnet where magnetism works. Like That's a very kind of abstract idea. So to make it more concrete, you give a kid a magnet. And you give them another magnet and you say, look, it, it works here and it works here, but it doesn't work there. And it does something different there. But you can't do that with everything. You know, you can't do that with the Bohr model of the atom because it's it's just no one can see atoms. I mean, you can with atomic force microscopy, but most most people can't. 
you can't see atoms. Um, most of us can't see digestion taking place. And digestion is one of the examples I use in the book. Whereas what the diagram does, the picture, what that does is in the same way that playing with the magnet makes that abstract idea concrete, the picture makes that abstract idea concrete. Because for me, concrete ideas are things which you can sense, things that you can see, that you can smell, that you can hear, that you can touch, that are perceptible, that relate to feelings. Whereas things that are abstract don't, they don't relate to feelings. So, you know, the fact that polar bears are white for camouflage is, is very concrete. Whereas the idea of an adaptation that animals suit their environment is abstract. So the way you illustrate the abstract thing is through something concrete. And sometimes that might be a picture, it might be a sound, it might be a feeling like with the magnets, but a lot of the time it will just have to be a diagram because there's nothing you can show people, there's nothing they can smell, there's nothing they can hear that will make it any more concrete. Uh, so I, I, I tend to avoid the dual coding theory thing because I think it only tells part of the picture and also I think it's become tied up with all this nonsense and i prefer to just tell people that you know you give people you need to make things that are abstract concrete and one of the best ways to do that is just by drawing a simple diagram uh, just by drawing an image just by showing a process visually uh, i think it makes a big difference and i have to say yeah as you're talking there i, I found myself flicking flicking through your book and finding uh, one of my favorite explanations which was the one on digestion <laughs> We all love a bit of digestion, don't we? But, you know, as a primary teacher, it's fun sometimes to revisit this secondary knowledge. And you think, oh, yeah, forget, you know, forget that stuff from my from my own high school experience. But even though I'm not hearing you aloud, even just by the way you've laid it out in these tables, which are clearly restricted for you in a book format, trying to explain how to explain stuff. I'm hearing it like I am hearing it and I am visualizing the way you're diagram has slowly come to life with these extra bits of details and there's a non-fussiness to um, them that I really really like but I can see by just that extra layer that extra label slowly building it up how children would really really understand some of this stuff quite deeply which is yeah it's great now when you're um, talking about vocabulary in the book really like the way that you did something very simple and you 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 said that in the classroom you quite often say things like scientists call this or scientists say and I guess that must have leapt out for me because in a lot of primary schools such as mine would be working really hard on more sort of subject specific disciplines that's something that a lot of people worked on in the primary session we've moved away from this very kind of generic topic work wanting children to understand a scientist is a scientist or a historian is a historian the, the way we we perhaps think is different in those different subjects so how important is it for you that children get you know how a scientist thinks how a scientist operates um, in your lessons i think it's really important i think it's also really difficult to communicate mm. and many have tried and failed because uh, the problem is that that scientists they they are you know you remember i said that primary children are like a different species like an expert in the field, like cognitively, they're a different species. Yeah. The, the, the stuff about explanations in the book is a great example. If you come to the book we, and you've only ever explained stuff using PowerPoint or whatever, the way that I do it is completely different. It's a paradigm. I, I happen to think it's better. Fine. I don't, I, I don't actually have any evidence that it is. I happen to think it is. But regardless of whether or not it's better, it's clearly different. And it's qualitatively different. And it takes 100 pages to break down what I do and to explain what I do. And I've got a table where I summarize those hundred pages, all of my explanations, but that's at the end. Yeah. Because I have to build it up really slowly and carefully. And that table is then an expression of kind of what's in my head. 
but I need to get you to my head first. And then that table is obvious to you. Mm -hmm. It's just that crystallized summary for you. And, and students are like that as well. If I want them to be able to kind of do the stuff that scientists does, I need to get their heads to be more similar to the scientists. And that kind of, that way of thinking almost emerges. Uh, it's, uh, it's what the philosophers would call it. It's an epiphenomenon. It just like, it comes out of it naturally. And I don't, I don't know what the best way to do that is. I think many people have tried and failed. Um, I do think, you know, I do things like I say, you know, scientists call this X because I want to make it really clear that this is a scientific term. It's a definition. It's mm. something of importance. It's something of weight. Am I going to say to you that that's actually going to make a difference to their understanding of like what science is or what scientists do or who scientists are? I don't know. That's fair enough. And as a final question, Adam, it was really interesting to read your points about analogies when making explanations. What are your top tips for using analogies effectively? Well, it's a bit like. <laughs> hey, no, no. <laughs> yeah, so there are a few that there are a few that people know. The most commonly spoken about kind of principles or rules for using analogies is number one, that they need to um, be familiar to the students. So a very common analogy for the way that a cell works is people talk about factories. Anyway, kids like, what? I mean, What's that factory? <laughs> yeah, like they've never, they've never been inside the factory. I mean, have you ever been inside a factory? Like, I don't know, like, like Cabri's world? Does that count? <laughs> I don't know, right? But, but it, it, it's, not, it's not a great start. You know, it's like those kids in Wigan who you're saying, yeah, our curriculum <laughs> is a bit like the tube map, yeah? And it's got like these different lines and these different connections. And the kids are like, what are you talking about? Like, I don't want to get into Charing Cross. I don't know what, where. <laughs> so it, it's, not, it's not a good or useful analogy. Yeah. Um, the second kind of thing that people talk about <laughs> is how closely it actually maps to the thing you're talking about. So is an atom actually like the solar system at all? No, not really. So is the solar system a good analogy for an atom? No, probably not. The, the, the best one is electricity. And in fact, in a natural curriculum, I think, if I remember correctly, you do need to teach students analogies for electricity specifically and their, their limitations. And a lot of the time... <laughs> that people use central heating, Yeah. right? And I'm like, the first thing is, yeah, no one knows how their central heating works. No. It, it's just ridiculous. Mm. People are like, oh, it's just like central heating. It's just like radiators. And the kids are like, well, actually, hang on. I haven't got a fucking clue how radiators <laughs> work. <laughs> it, it makes things hot. How? How does it? So how does it actually do that? And then before you know it, you've got to teach kids about boilers and radiators, and then you can get to <laughs> batteries and cells. But not only that, but it's also just a rubbish analogy. Yeah. Like it just doesn't, because, you know, in, in a cell, the cell is what pushes the current and provides energy for the current. Whereas in central heating, you'd have to have a boiler and a pump. Right. Right. And, they, you know, it's two different things and what causes resistance and, and how current would separate a junction. It's just, it's just a not, it's just, it doesn't map. Uh, and in fact, I've got I've got this little theory that in an, in, a, in an alternative universe, the national curriculum has students learn about fluid dynamics, and they use electricity as an analogy to teach kids about fluid dynamics. They have exactly the same problems. And there's a parallel Adam who's doing a parallel podcast right now, talking about a potential other universe. Uh, where they, where they, so it goes round and round. It's it's turtles all the way down. Um, anyway, I can't remember what it was. So so yeah, the, but, but look, all analogies will break down at some points. They have to. That's why their analogies yeah. are not the thing itself it's just about where where is the point at which they do break down 
the the final aspect of teaching with analogies that is the one that i don't think people know enough about which is is it even necessary Um, a lot of the time we assume that students need an analogy to make something concrete or to make something familiar first but 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 sometimes you don't and sometimes they just don't need it i think the the best example is one that i use in the book which is about the periodic table so Dmitry Mendeleev, he was a Russian chemist about 150 years ago, and he put the he put the periodic table together. And one of the things that he did was he sorted elements by their properties. So everybody else, they put the elements just in in order of their weight. Yeah, so which one was heavier than the previous one? Whereas he said, no, forget the weight. Who cares? Yeah, put them in groups based on their properties. These ones are metals. Uh, these ones are not metals. These ones are colorful. These ones are not colorful. These ones react with oxygen. These ones don't react with oxygen. Put them in groups like that. And then, and then there's a whole industry of, of activities around this where you give students loads of different things on the board, you know, oranges, football, car, fire extinguisher, and you ask students to categorize them and group them together. Uh, and the students, you know, they spend it, you know, and it's really like engaging and, and you like talk a lot about how different people will categorize them differently, et cetera, et cetera. And then you talk about Mendeleev and what he did. The problem is here that, that actually categorizing stuff is like the most obvious an easily understood thing in the world. Mm. It's it's one of the earliest branches of science, right? Taxonomy. Aristotle did taxonomy, walking around looking at plants mm. and saying which ones go in groups together. Like this is this is like a fundamental aspect of the human cognitive processing. And you guys teach primacy. You see, you see this the whole time. You know, if you give, you know, I, I've got the um, my daughter, she's five. We've got the uh, what do we call the cuisinaire rods. Mm. Yeah, and, and I'll give her the cuisinaire rods and, and I'll say, you know, I say just play or whatever. And the first thing she does is like try to put them in groups and yeah. try to categorize them and try and make, make this one match yeah. the other. Yeah. Like it's just a natural part of humanness. So it's like, it's spectacularly missing the point because the, the actual thing that Mendeleev did, which is difficult to understand, is how he differed from the others because he did blend some of their methods and he left groups for elements that hadn't been discovered yet and he swapped some elements around even though their weight was different to keep them into the groups based on their properties and things like that. And like actually understanding what he did and how it differs from what came before and what came afterwards is really hard. So what you've done is you've got an hour to do your lesson. You spent half an hour teaching students the analogy, which is categorizing sports together and foods together and transport objects together. And that's the easiest thing in the world. So so at best, you've wasted time. At worst, and this is the most important point, it shows that you don't understand what's difficult about what you're teaching students today. Mm. You're teaching students X, Y, and Z, and you think that X is the thing that's hard here. And I'm telling you, X is the easy thing. Y and Z are the hard thing. Mm. So it's a red flag in the sense that it's not just about wasting their time. It's about you not understanding the content that needs to get taught. And, and that was me. Yeah, I've got it. Yeah, I don't anymore because I deleted it and I, I burned it in the fire of purgatory. But like, <laughs> I did that lesson for three years in a row. Yeah, where I had all those words up on the board and I asked kids to categorize. And then I told them, this is what Mendeleev did. Happy days. Everybody leaves. Plenary. But like, like they clearly, they, they, they didn't understand. How could they? Because mm-hmm. I'd not spent any time on the thing that's hard. And I've not even realized that that's the thing that's hard. Yeah, that's really interesting. That last point. I, I, as you were describing that there, I think in primary setting, we do reach for analogies quite a lot of the time. And I think sometimes that's really useful. But I think reflecting back on my career, I think I might have done that at times when I was just a bit mm, not quite up to scratch with the subject knowledge on that particular thing I was about to teach. And it seemed like an easy sort of simplification to reach for the analogy. So that's a great, that's a great point. Yeah, Russ, you've definitely done that before, mate. <laughs> <laughs> do you observe that lesson, did you see? <laughs> 
Hey, Adam, it's been a real delight talking to you. Congratulations on a cracking book. It really is good. And, you know, I encourage primary colleagues to have a have a good look at it, particularly the chapter on explanations. Really very thorough and uh, thought provoking and did a lot for me. So really appreciate your time talking through all of that, Adam. And if people do want to connect with you online, where can they find you? Um, at Adam Boxer One. Awesome. Wow. Cheers, Adam. My pleasure. Thank you, guys. Thank you. The Dynamic Deputy. Mm-hmm.